Welcome to Coffee House. We have a new fiction entry today. I can't remember what number this is. It'll be on the title. It'll be in the title of what number we're on in the top 100 books of all time. We've read about going on 30 now. And that means we have about 70 to go. But the next several should be quick ones. I've heard of them and they're not super long except for Rushdie. Rushdie is quite verbose. But otherwise, we should be able to race through these fictions to get to the cream of the crop, the creme de la creme, the greatest works of all time. Once we get to the top 50, it's going to be a big, big deal. But for now, we have Journey to the End of Night. This is by Louis Ferdinand Celine. And this was something that I had never read before. This is a completely new experience for me. It's a semi-autobiographical work about uh, Celine's experiences in the First World War. His The character's name is Bardamu, I believe. At least that's how I'm pronouncing it because it makes me think of Dormammu. What does he say? <laughs> in one of the, he says it like a hundred times. I've only seen that movie like once or twice. But there's some quote that he says over and over again to Dormammu and it makes me think of Bardamu. But anyway... Doctor Strange, that's what it's from. (laughs) But this book was published in 1932. This is in between the World Wars and just after the Great Crash. So you might want to take some of that into consideration. The title actually comes from a song that's in French. And the book was written in French originally. The song in English goes, Our life is a journey through winter and night. We look for our way in a sky without light. The book was apparently a big influence on the beat writers that would come later. The Kerouacs and such. Some confirmed, I think, and others, they just know that they traveled through France around the time of this publication. And this book shares a lot of similarities with the later beat writers and what they're interested in, the way they write, what they write about, and just the tone and tenor of their writings. So, as always, we'll go through the contents of this book. We will talk about, we're going to do some quotes because it's a fiction. We're going to do some analysis, and we're going to talk a little big picture If you're interested, I should have a link for a book that I wrote, and there's actually going to be a big deal, big thing coming out pretty soon, related to some of my own work, and I hope that people enjoy it. If you don't, please let me know. If you do, let me know. It will likely, there might be a portion of it that will be one of the episodes here, but the entirety of it will be posted on the YouTube channel, I think, and otherwise available on Audible. If you're inclined to support my actual, my actual work, (laughs) the the real stuff that I want to do as a to simply commenting upon everybody else's. So anyway, here we go. The contents. So this book is about travel. It's comprised of a lot of travel, much like uh, what you will see later in the Beat Poets in Kerouac. The main character travels all over the place. He mixes in some unhealthy relationships with some unsavory girls and other characters. But this one is kind of coming of age structure without the coming of age. Throughout the travels, you just mostly become more entrenched in your pessimism and confirm your prior suspicions about life. So there a lot of things happen throughout this book. It's a relatively long book and some of the tent poles when it comes to the action are like the character in the beginning is searching for a German with a friend, another soldier, is searching for a German to surrender to so they can be in relative safety as a German POW instead of having to continue to fight the war. But when they couldn't find any Germans, they end up getting injured or at least the main character does and wounded in action, he doesn't have to continue the fight. He at one point ends up in a trading post in colonial Africa where he's working and he meets a guy named Robinson 
who would make regular appearances throughout the rest of the book. And there is this kind of embodiment of the side character, you know, the wild card character. You know, On the Road has that character, but in On the Road, the character was kind of romantic and interesting. And even though things don't necessarily work out for either of the characters in that book, there seems to be something behind it. Whereas this Robinson character, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot to it. And remember, this is after the great First World War, when you don't know what the hell is going to happen after that, and the crash of 29. So you're up to your elbows in a Great Depression after a world war that didn't seem like it was worth it, and you get to see what kind of comes out of that. So anyway, while he's working at the trading post in Colonial Africa, Robinson says that the company that he's working for is corrupt and cheats its employees and the natives in the area. So this disenchants uh, Bardamu. At one point, he gets this fever, and in the midst of his fever, he sets fire to the post in, the, in a delirium. And I believe he's taken uh, by some people, and he ends up as a, a galley slave on a ship to New York, so he's heading to the United States now. And like I said, I mean, this this is the kind of travel. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to drive across the country and do some farming here and there. It's another thing to go from the front lines of the First World War to Africa and out of New York. So he ends up, through the midst of this, he ends up working at Ford, where he finds the work dehumanizing and exhausting. So he rejects that, he returns to France to finish his medical training, and thinks he can find something in this kind of work, in the medical field. But, I mean, there are things that happen along the way that are kind of paint the picture of what this world is and what, how this character relates to this world. So, like, there's this one character, a, a snitch prostitute. So there's this prostitute that all of the people know about in the army uh, that I neglected to mention earlier. So they would all go to her, and she's this wonderful prostitute, you know, does her job very well. And she knows all of the guys, you know, there's a regular line out the door for this particular one. But she gets the guys to be honest with her, and they... They tell her about things that they've done, like faking an injury or something to get out of having to serve at the front line or something like that. And then she goes and snitches on them to their management. And there's something interesting about the characters, the main characters kind of indifference to her betraying these soldiers in their weak moments. Uh, he doesn't hold it against her. He's not like mad at her for it or something like that. But he also, so he has a girl at one point who seems to be supportive and she's, you know, trying to help him along and does all these things for him and they have fun together and all that. But he goes on this rant at one point about how anti-war he is and how ridiculous the war is and he doesn't want any part of it and it's pretty over over the top rant and she leaves she just finds it uh distasteful or not attractive or something and so she leaves and throughout the book again this was written in the 1930s so throughout the book it's it's coarse it uses foul language it uses the f word there's a lot of sex and a lot of prostitute and sex talk at one point uh there's this character who's talking about patriotism and how important patriotism is and decries the sophistry of self-preservation so it's this extreme character that's expressing the views that the author wants to criticize heavily and is doing so in an extreme way you know the sophistry of self-preservation and how ridiculous it is to want to preserve yourself when you have a, such a chance to give your life for, for patriotism. Anyway, he starts a practice, you know, back in France. It doesn't go well. He, the people he treats don't have the money to pay him. And then Robinson re-emerges and, you know, engages in some dastardly kinds of things. 
But eventually, Bartamu, he finds a job at a lunatic asylum. You know, kind of a lowly job there, or middling job there. And the head of the lunatic asylum takes the English lessons from Bartamu about, like, English poets and things like that. And becomes inspired and decides to take off to England and leaves Bartamu in charge of the asylum. Eventually, Robinson shows up and says he doesn't want this. He has this woman who's in love with him, but he doesn't want the woman's love. And they go on a trip. They're having just a double date at some point. And when they get in the cab, Robinson decides to tell this woman, you know, I don't care that you love me. I don't love you. And she shoots him. (laughs) And uh, through all of it, through the length of the entire narrative, it is determined by the character, by Bardamu, that there's no idea bigger than death in all of his travels and everything that he learned, that that is simply it. So that's pretty much the book. That is pretty much the book of The Journey to the End of Night, and it certainly makes sense of the title. So just so you can get an idea, I've got a couple of short quotes and then a longer one to really nail it. The, the first quote is, here's how it started. And that is, you know, what I usually do is take the first line of the book. That's how the book starts. Here's how it started. And there's something very stark about that, because it's just like life. It, that's, that's how your life starts, too. Here's how it started. It just happens, and you're there. Here's another quote. Quote, leaning against a tree, I had barely time enough to honor that alimentary dispute with two or three glances before being overcome by an enormous urge to vomit, which I did so hard that I passed out. End quote. So this has that juxtaposition. You know, this is supposed to be high literature about arguably the most important topic, and it has things like this. You know, I, I vomited so hard that I passed out. Quote, Those unknown soldiers missed us every time, but they spun a thousand deaths around us. So close they seemed to clothe us. I was afraid to move. End quote. This is just one. I liked this, uh, this little chunk here. They spun a thousand deaths around us. What a wonderful way to say that. And then here is a quote. This is a quote that um, somebody who didn't like the book. It was somebody's review. I was reading reviews of this book, and they didn't like the book very much, but they had this one quote that they had blocked out. They showed, like, a picture of the page of the quote that they thoroughly enjoyed and thought encapsulated the book. So I wanted to read this uh, entire quote at length. I think I cut out a couple chunks or something like that. But I thought it was kind of important to really understand the tone and tenor of the book and what relationship it has to the people who read it. Quote, One fine day you decide to talk less and less about the things you care most about, and when you have to say something, it costs you an effort. You're totally sick of hearing yourself talk. You abridge, you give up. For 30 years you've been talking. You don't care about being right anymore. You even lose your desire to keep hold of the small place you'd reserve yourself among the pleasures of life. You're fed up. From that time on, you're content to eat a little something, cadge a little warmth, and sleep as much as possible on the road to nowhere. To rekindle your interest, you'd have to think up some new grimaces to put on in the presence of others, but you no longer have the strength to renew your repertory. You stammer. Sure, you still look for excuses for hanging around with the boys, but death is there too, stinking right beside you. It's there the whole time, less mysterious than a game of poker. The only thing you continue to value is petty regrets, like not finding time to run out to Bois Colombe, to see your uncle while he was still alive, the one whose little song died for every one afternoon in February. That horrible little regret is all we have left of life. We vomited up the rest along the way with a good deal of effort and misery. We're nothing now but an old lamppost with memories on a street where hardly anyone passes anymore. End quote. What a falling cinder block of a last sentence. We're nothing now but an old lamppost with memories on a street where hardly anyone passes anymore. That, the whole book was worth running into that sentence. 
Anyway, that said, so uh, we have an analysis now. What's the analysis? So we actually read, we read another French author who's a little depressing a little while ago, Camus. And it's interesting to think about the contrast between the two books, The Stranger and Journey to the End of Night, because Camus had ideas in it. You know, it was exploratory. It was searching within it, whereas this one doesn't seem to be searching so much. You know, Camus was interested in the differences between nihilism and existentialism and wanted to explore what was there in the world. This is how uh, one person had described this particular book. Journey to the End of Night reflects a pessimistic view of the human condition in which suffering, old age, and death are the only eternal truths. Life is miserable for the pure, futile for the rich, and hopes for human progress and happiness are illusory. So, uh, miserable for the poor, futile for the rich. The only truths are suffering, old age, and death. Celine's biographer, uh, Patrick McCarthy, argues that hate is a central theme of the novel. The Selenian man suffers from an original sin of malicious hatred, but there is no God to redeem him. This is kind of a, a fall without the redemption. War, for its part, is an implacable force, and the only point of it is a means for the rich to cull the poor. So it doesn't have the grand romantic meaning that it has been given. It's just another cynical and pessimistic means of culling the poor. And even when it's successful, the rich still don't gain anything but futility from it. The only thing that you can get is you can choose to face death in the way that you want to face it. That's a choice that you can make to some degree. You have some control over that aspect of it. But otherwise, there's not much to be gleaned from this whole life thing. The writing style itself was unique. This is how it was described by one person. Uh, in Journey to the End of Night, Celine, Celine developed a unique literary language based on the spoken French of the working class, medical and nautical jargon, neologisms, obscenities, and the specialized slang of soldiers, sailors, and the criminal underworld. And it felt like it. You know, it felt very brutish. And obviously it was originally written in French, but there's kind of a... It's not ugly or necessarily stilted, but it does feel grounded and dirty. And of course, the obvious thing to contrast it with or compare it to is Hemingway. So Hemingway has, you know, his prose is strong and it hits you. It's like a boxer who's is going for your midsection. That's what it feels like when you're reading Hemingway. But the thing about Hemingway is that every sentence that he writes is dripping with meaning. Hemingway definitely infuses value into the ideas that he puts forth and the sentences that he writes, whereas Celine uses kind of reserved prose, and it's not as uh, unique structurally as Hemingway is, but uh, he uses really reserved prose, but it doesn't seem to have the, the weight to it that you see in other writing. It doesn't have the meaning attached to it. It doesn't feel like you can walk stably on it if you could lay it out some way. <laughs> Anyway, moving on to the big picture, it, what Journey to the End of Night seems to do is it disqualifies what is valuable. And of course, in our last episode, we actually discussed about the transvaluation of values. But in the book, it's like war, women, love, industry, enlightenment, even progress. All these things are disqualified as valuable. And the only truth is death. And there's only value in that being the truth. The question for the book is whether the author is showing kind of 20th century ideology as empty, or is he diagnosing the end of history, or he's, is he just expressing his own psychology? For our purposes, values are always dependent. This is something we've talked about before. But the beauty of a novel equation, which is what our existence is based on, is the value follows naturally from the first input, and you aren't bound by any one input. 
So these are big, heavy questions, big, heavy ideas uh, that, of course, we could spend a long time discussing. And it's something we might expound upon as we go through some of the other books. But coming up next, I'm working on The Rise of Statistical Thinking, which has some fantastic ideas in it. I'm loving that book. One of Nietzsche's books is one that we're working on right now, too. And the next fiction book that we're going to be doing uh, as part of the Best 100, we might throw in a fiction book here and there, but as part of the Best 100 is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And I have never read that cover to cover, so we are going to read that and do the same kind of episode on that one. But otherwise, oh my gosh, so many good ideas just floating about right now that we need to explore. And like I said, we're going to have, I'm actually going to be contributing to the zeitgeist. But apart from that, hopefully you enjoyed this episode and we will have some more coming down the pike and I hope to see you on the next one. All right, bye. (laughs) 